As we continue in worship, our sermon text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It was written around A.D. in the year of our Lord, 55. And it is likely the oldest account in the New Testament, even older than the gospel accounts, of the resurrection of Jesus. It was written um, perhaps 20 years from the time of Jesus' death. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. First Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, or brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe, believed. Shall we pray? Again, Father, we ask that as the breeze is blowing here outside, that you would blow your Holy Spirit within our hearts. Give us ears that are attentive, Lord, to your word. Fill our hearts with Hope and joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes people approach pastors and say, I really like this part of Christianity, but I don't like this part so much. I struggle to accept this part of Jesus' teaching, for instance. And one well-known former pastor and, and best-selling author by the name of Tim Keller says this, If Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs in the balance is not whether you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Tim Keller has it exactly right. The reality of Jesus' resurrection or the unreality of the claim of his resurrection is either a game changer or it's a deal breaker and the apostle paul says as much in this letter that he wrote to the corinthian church some two thousand years ago the fact is there were no eyewitnesses at the very moment the exact moment that jesus rose from the dead history is not like science in science you repeat the experiment you rerun it and you should be able to verify the accuracy of the results 
History is not like that. Nothing in history can be proven the way you can prove something in a laboratory. So if no one was present to record the exact moment that Jesus purported to have risen from the dead, what other evidence is there to support this claim? Well, we might ask this question. Did Jesus die on the cross? Is there evidence that Jesus died on the cross? Another question we might ask as well is, did he appear later on to people after his death? The answer to those questions from a Christian from the Bible is yes. There are numerous sources that Jesus did, in fact, die on a cross. He was executed by the Romans, who were quite good at executing people. Before he died on the cross, he was flogged. He was whipped extensively. And none of this would, would make him unique, we must add. Many people were flogged by the Romans. They were known for doing that. Many people were crucified by the Romans. It was a common form of punishment for serious criminals in Jesus' day. But some people say that all religions are alike. But here we can just name one example. We can note a serious point of difference between Islam and Christianity. Muslims do not believe that Jesus died. Yet not only the New Testament, but also the Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a Christian, records not only that Jesus lived, but that Jesus died. Paul, citing an early Christian creed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, said, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, the gospel is received. It's like a, a runner in a relay race who receives the baton from the runner who's coming behind him. Paul received it. The apostles received it as well, and they are passing it on, and it is being passed on today as well, in which you hold fast to that baton of the gospel, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, there's nothing more important than what Paul has to say. Or there's nothing, no more important beliefs for Christianity than these. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What is it that you need to believe in order to become a Christian or to remain a Christian? First of all, you need to believe that Christ died for our sins, that Christ died for your sins. This is a significant part of the gospel, the good news that Paul preached. He didn't proclaim good advice so that human beings can improve themselves and work their way toward God. No, that is not what Paul proclaimed. It wasn't good advice. You need to do X, Y, and Z in order to make yourselves better and clean yourselves up. No, the good news is what God did, what God does for mankind, for human beings. Jesus' death on the cross, in one sense, was like all other Roman executions. He was executed like other ones on a cross. And yet, his death accomplished something very significant for others. He came as a substitute for sinners, 
to take our place so that we might not have to suffer eternally in hell, eternal damnation, but might be saved through him and through his work on the cross and his life as well. Unlike the Jewish lambs that were slaughtered at the time of the Passover, Jesus, like the Jewish lambs, he was a substitute, but unlike them, he was able to take our place in a way that lambs never could because Jesus was fully human and fully God. Admittedly, Paul does not use the name Jesus here. He uses the title Christ. Christ died for our sins. Christ, which means Messiah. Christ, which means God's anointed one, the Jewish sacrificial lamb, although the Jews believed that he was coming as a conquering king and not as a sacrificial lamb. Yet we do find mention of a suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. Paul tells us not only that Jesus died, and he died for a purpose, he died for our sins, but also in verse 4, that he was buried. He was really and truly dead. He was buried It was a Jewish custom to bury bodies, and it is the Christian custom as well, despite the increase in number of people being cremated these days. So if Jesus died and he was buried, it would have been possible to go and see his tomb if you were alive at that time. In fact, if you were to go and visit Jerusalem today, there would be plenty of tour guides who would be happy to show you some possible places in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem where Jesus was buried. And we know from reading the gospel writers, all of them really, that the tomb was empty. When the women arrived there, an empty tomb is one piece of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. But while it's a necessary piece of evidence, it is not sufficient. More is needed. In his book, The Case for Christ, investigative journalist Lee Strobel uh, tells the story of Addie Mae Collins, who was one of four African-American girls tragically murdered in an infamous church bombing by white racists in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1963. For years, family members of Addie Mae returned to her grave to bring flowers and pray. But because the cemetery was in such bad repair, the family decided in 1998 to dig up the body and rebury it in a different cemetery. When workers went to dig it up, they discovered that the grave was empty. The family was quite upset, as you can imagine, and a number of explanations were given, such as the tombstone was put in the wrong place. One explanation, however, that was not given was that Addie Mae had been raised from the dead. Why not? Because an empty grave does not a resurrection make. And yet in the case of Jesus, that is what is claimed and believed. Even though people in Jesus' day were no more likely to believe that people rose from the dead, that Jesus rose from the dead, than people are today. Well, why not? Well, in in Corinth, in the area there, the Greeks in Jesus' day did uh, did believe in the immortality of the, the soul. The good soul that was believed after at death would be separated from the prison house of the evil body. That's what the Greeks tended to believe. They didn't think favorably of of bodies, human bodies. The Greeks were not looking for a bodily resurrection. And neither were the Jews, many of them. 
They were not looking for one individual anyway to rise from the dead. No, they were, if they were looking for the resurrection from the dead, and some of them were, particularly the Pharisees, they were looking for the deliverance of the whole world at one time to be delivered from its bondage to decay and not one individual being raised from the dead. And with the rest of the world still subject to death and sickness and decay, they were not likely to believe that one individual would be risen from the dead. But when we look at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul not only writes that he was buried, that is, Jesus was buried, Christ was buried, but that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. To be a Christian, we must believe that, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised as well. There are a number of verses from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that are suggestive of resurrection from the dead. Hosea 6, which we read at the beginning of the service. Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 71, verse 20. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Daniel 12, verse 2. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14 are some that you could look up this afternoon if you wanted to look into that further. But nonetheless, no Jews, as I've already mentioned, would have been looking for the kind of resurrection that the first Christians claimed that Jesus experienced. Not even Jesus' first followers who were Jews. If there had been no sightings of Jesus after he rose from the dead, and there had been only an empty tomb, no one would have, been, would have concluded that it was a resurrection. And yet there were sightings. Sightings of Jesus, risen after he had been, been dead. A significant number of witnesses claimed to have seen Jesus after he rose from the dead. Paul gives us some of the, early, the earliest list of some of these sightings, some of these encounters with the risen Jesus, beginning in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Cephas is the apostle Peter's Aramaic name. And to be considered an apostle, he needed to be someone who had seen Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. Then there were the 12, or the 11, after Judas killed himself. But then they received another member, Matthias, to take Judas's place. In verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500. Now that's a huge number of people. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is to say have died. Now, we're not sure when and where this took place. Did it happen in Galilee that Jesus appeared to 500? may have been brothers and sisters, men and women, or in Jerusalem. We're not sure. Nonetheless, that is Paul's testimony here. But perhaps Paul also means to suggest, as one commentator did, as, as he uses the word fallen asleep, meaning they died, that death to the believer is asleep for the body, a period of rest to be followed by a glorious day, a glorious day of resurrection, that is. But notice something else about verse 6. It's almost as if Paul is inviting people to contact the living witnesses and see if what he says is true. He says, most of whom are still alive at the time he's writing, though some have fallen asleep or died. 25 years ago, on February 
26, 1996, I was ordained as a gospel, as a, I'm sorry, not as a gospel, as a minister of the gospel in Hyattsville, Maryland. Now, none of you who are here and none of you on Zoom were there for that service except one person, Krista. She is here and was there at the time. And so how do you know that I'm not making it up, that I was ordained as a minister of the gospel? Well, how could you verify that? Well, I do have a paper I think I can still find that says that I have fulfilled, fulfilled in partial fulfillment of the requirements for ordination. But what if I didn't finish all the requirements? I just finished that, that paper. Or I could show you a certificate that's in my office that was signed by the clerk of Potomac Presbytery on, around the time of, well, the, the statement says February 6, 26, 1996. But the clerk himself is no longer alive. He died some near, number of years ago, so you can't ask him. But there are some other people other than Krista and me who were, he, who were there that day. Most of them live in the Washington, D.C. Some live in other places. But if you really needed to ask other people and you needed witnesses, you could ask them because they're still living today. And that's a little bit like what Paul's saying here, that there are still people who are still alive at the time he was writing that you could ask. Now, of course, there comes a point in which those people would have died and you can no longer ask them. And so it has to be written down as it is here um, in, in Paul's testimony. And Paul continues to give us more witnesses in verse 7. He writes, Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And the James here is likely the brother of Jesus, though we know that there was another James who was one of Jesus' closest followers, who was James, the son of Zebedee. But if we read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Luke, and John, we read of Jesus appearing to the apostles and others after he died and rose again. That's some of the critical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Now, we might ask, why doesn't Paul mention the women followers of Jesus? We know that when we read the gospel accounts, that they were the first ones to go to the tomb. But the answer is likely that women in Paul's day were not considered reliable witnesses. And women in Paul's day could not testify in a court of law. And so Paul gives us a list of people who were considered in his day reliable witnesses here to the Corinthians. But it's interesting that of all the gospel accounts that state women were the first eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus, they don't, the gospel writers don't attempt to hide this fact, even though, as I already mentioned, women were not considered in that day reliable witnesses. And yet all of the gospel writers include that in their details, that women were the first ones to see the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. Finally, Paul lists himself as a witness in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 8 through 11. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a very religious Jew. He was so opposed to Christians and so opposed to the claim that Jesus was the Messiah that he put Christians to death until he had a dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Syria. And then he became a follower of Jesus and no longer a persecutor of the church. And not only did he become a follower of Jesus, but he became an apostle, one sent out by the risen Jesus to bear witness to this. 
Paul knew how wrong it was after he met the risen Jesus. And he rethought all of his beliefs about God and Jesus himself. He knew that it w- what it was to be a sinner in need of forgiveness of sins. And how good the message was that Christ died for sinners. So in order to be a Christian or become a Christian, we need to believe that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day as well. And Paul says here, as he continues in the last verses here of this section, verses 10 and 11, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace is his unmerited favor towards sinners. It is his, God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the Holy Spirit working in our hearts so that we might believe that Christ died for our sins, for your sins, and for mine as well. And the proof of this is that Christ rose from the dead. This is the same good news that Paul preached and the other apostles preached. They received that good news like a baton, the baton of the gospel to be, to be handed on to, to future generations, including ours, so many generations to, away from their time. Paul wrote in Romans 10, and we looked at the beginning of our service, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a game changer if it really happened. But if it didn't happen, it's a deal breaker. Then Christianity is a lie. If it's true, then it means that we cannot live our lives any way we want. We must submit our lives to Jesus' kingship, his lordship. We can't pick and choose which teachings of Jesus we'll follow and which we won't. We must obey all that Jesus commands and believe all that he teaches. He is Lord. He is King. Who are we to disobey the King of the universe? But it also means that we don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything, not even death. We don't have to preserve our lives as if this world is all there is as if there's no life after death. No, if Jesus rose from the dead, there is life after death, not only for him, but for those who believe in him. There is a resurrection. This life is not all there is. This life is a drop in the ocean, and in the the ocean of eternity that lasts forever. And not only that, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then all of our actions have significance as well. We can engage the world without fear. We can help others. We can love others, knowing that we are serving a living and risen Lord. So here's the bottom line. Whether you consider yourself a Christian today, this morning, or whether you know that you're not, the followers of Jesus suffered persecution, and most of them ended their lives as martyrs. Blaise Pascal, the the French mathematician and philosopher, said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. In other words, if you're willing to die for your beliefs, you're likely not 
lying about them. Which is more likely that the disciples got together when Jesus died and said, isn't this horrible? Let's pretend he rose from the dead and start a movement and endure persecution and be martyred for a lie. Or to believe that they were telling the truth, that he really did rise from the dead, which means if he did rise from the dead, that he is living today. He is living and active and ruling from God's right hand where he ascended 40 days after the resurrection. And his work on the cross of dying to pay the debts of sinners who would believe in him, that he did in fact pay their debts, that if you believe in him, he did in fact pay your debts to reconcile you to God, that you too might be forgiven. If the resurrection of Jesus really happened, Christians should have and can have more hope than any other people. If the resurrection of Jesus did happen, then Christians can and should have more hope and joy than any other people. And if the resurrection of Jesus is just a hoax or a lie, then don't bother with the rest of what Jesus said either. The choice is yours, but the consequence is eternal. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus, the reality of it. We thank you that these apostles, anybody could claim that he had risen from the dead, but these apostles were willing to lay down their lives. They were willing to have their throats slit because they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it was life-changing for them. And Lord, we pray that you would make it life-changing for us this day for all who are listening on Zoom, for all who are here in person, Lord, we ask that you would help us too to believe, not just in a moment or for a moment, but for a lifetime, that we might have our lives changed and shaped by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.